Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I got on so well with people out there and I achieved so much. I ended up climbing mountains, whitewater rafting, going on safari walks and all sorts of crazy things. And it woke me up to the possibility that I don't need to be bound by this physical condition of mine. Just as I've not allowed myself to be mentally bound by it, I picked the hardest jobs I could find when I was in training. So I picked the, the hardest rotations, the ones that nobody else would touch with the barge pole, 100-hour weeks, the obnoxious consultants, because I was used to those already. The bottom line is that the fastest-growing group of people getting stroke is now middle age. Less people getting stroke in old age, there are more people getting stroke in middle age. So there is definitely a need for a better strategy, you know, rather than just, oh, well, sorry, it's happened now, there's not much we can do about it. Have a sense of pride about, you know, how many other people do you know would have come through to this stage with this level of positivity or just being here still and to not believe what people tell you when they say you've plateaued don't believe that try everything and anything because you'll be surprised what you can actually do there's always a way around things hello this is mark goodyear welcome to stroke stories in the last episode, we heard the first part of Satinda Sanghera's incredible story as she recovered from a stroke at the age of 20. In this episode, we'll hear the second part of her story, including her time working as a GP, the gardening charity she set up to help adults with physical and mental health difficulties, and her advice to stroke survivors and their loved ones. Let's hear how Satinder distanced herself from her past to help her come to terms with the effects of her stroke. I think that out of all the kind of conditions out there, stroke is still one of the least understood. You know, most people I know will say there's one thing they wouldn't want it would be to have a stroke. You know, jokes are still made about, you know, having strokes and things, you know. Um, it doesn't conjure up the same sort of reaction as when people say they have cancer or they've had a heart attack. Is seen as the thing that's associated with, that's it, no hope, end of life. You can't come back from something like that and do anything meaningful and useful with your life. It doesn't help that when people have strokes, they're told that they've plateaued very shortly afterwards and that they're not going to get any better. <laughs> I don't think that helps. I'll tell you what helped me, though. And I did this when I was um, sort of a year and a bit into my medical training. I went away. I did my student elective in Malawi, in Africa. And I went on my own and ended up living in a tent on a campsite. And I was still pretty disabled at this point. And I will say that what was really good about doing that was that I went to like the other end of the world where nobody knew me, 
where I didn't take any history with me. Because the problem as well after you've had stroke is that people keep comparing you to how you were before. And that's really, really, really frustrating. Because it's like they don't only see the physical side of you. They don't realize that inside your head you still have the same passions, the same desires, the same dreams, the same sense of humor. They just see what's physically changed in you. But when I went out to Malawi, you know, people thought, oh, you know, she's got a gammy arm and a gammy foot and she walks funny. But they had nothing to compare it to. So they just took me as I was. And I got on so well with people out there and I achieved so much. I ended up climbing mountains, whitewater rafting, going on safari walks and all sorts of crazy things. And it woke me up to the possibility that I don't need to be bound by this physical condition of mine, just as I've not allowed myself to be mentally bound by it. I also don't need to be physically bound by it. And it gave me a lot of confidence. And from there, I went and lived and worked and traveled around New Zealand on my own for two years. I used to sleep in the back of a van. I jumped out of airplanes, bungee jumps, did four-day treks, carrying all my own gear. You know, I mean, it knackered me. And I've ended up having umpteen operations on my right leg because of contractures and everything. But I don't care, you know. I feel like I'm living and I just chuck my body around with me. But that first experience I had of, of detaching myself from my past and going and being invisible somewhere else where I had no history really helped me. Because otherwise, it doesn't matter how you try and bring yourself round in your life. There's something about people's perception of you it really changes after you have stroke. And it's really sad. Against all the odds, Satinda completed her training and became a GP. I think it made me a better doctor, not just in terms of my understanding of the people coming through the door, but also because when you have disability or anything that makes you different to other people, you work twice as hard. To be kind of perceived at being at the same level, I knew that I was going to find it harder to get a job. So as a result, I picked the hardest jobs I could find when I was in training. So I picked the, the hardest rotations, the ones that nobody else would touch at the barge pole, 100-hour weeks, the obnoxious consultants, because I was used to those already. Jobs that required a lot of manual dexterity as well. So I picked things like haematology jobs, where you have to do lots of very difficult venous sections and putting cannulas in and long lines, lumbar punctures. You know, anything that required a lot of dexterity, I was in there saying, I'll have a go. And, you know, I feel really proud to say that I could do a lot of things that a lot of able-bodied medics can't do. So I was on the few GPs in my area who could do joint injections and I did all the family planning. So I was doing all the implants, doing the coil fittings and things like this. I was doing minor surgery, you know. There were a lot of GPs that weren't doing it who had, you know, two good hands. So if anything, it made me push myself more and, I mean, I did acupuncture course, and so I did acupuncture my patients as well. Despite Satinda's achievements, she still found it difficult to talk to people about her stroke. For many years, they didn't know, because I never told anybody. Occasionally, people would ask, you know, and I'd say, oh, I've just injured my hand. It was when I was probably a good 10, 15 years into my training, I left my husband. A lot of things changed then. I actually became a lot more positive about myself and a lot less ashamed of myself. And I started then, when patients asked, I started saying, actually, I had a stroke. 
I wish I'd done it earlier, actually, because it created quite a buzz around the community. <laughs> you know, because I'd been very much kept myself to myself, and because I, I had not had a been had a good home life, and and then I suddenly kind of flourished, you know, and blossomed, and I was out there being the real me, which is actually quite a chatterbox, actually. <laughs> and it really helped because people, it gave them hope. They would say to me, you know, I feel now that I can do anything. You know, I look at you and I think, well, you know, she can, if Dr. Sangara can do it, I can do it, you know. So it was a help. It's continued to be a help as well because I run a gardening therapy charity now for disabled people and people with mental health issues. And it's and now, of course, I, I'm very open about my disability and I feel that it's been a help to people around me. I didn't want to stop work. I, I had to take ill health retirement. I picked really difficult jobs. As a result, I did acquire a lot of needle stick injuries when I was a, a junior doctor. And I carried, without realising it, hepatitis C for over 20 years. And eventually I found out when it was very sort of advanced and I was nearly going to liver failure. I was put on some non-cancer chemotherapy initially for 18 months and then that failed. So then I went on some more treatment. And as a result of all the treatment I had, because me being me, I refused to stop work. I carried on working through it all. Not seeing patients because I was immunosuppressed, but doing other things. It kind of had a knock-on effect to other bits of my body and the drugs themselves had an effect on things like blood pressure, I had a series of emergency admissions to hospital over a course of nearly two years. And eventually, stupid as I am, even I realised that, you know, I couldn't keep pushing through, that, you know, I was starting to really scare my family. So I very reluctantly gave up work. And I tell you that because that has a real bearing on, on what I did next. Because, you know, when you feel you've still got so much to offer, when you almost feel like, you know, when you feel like you're at the prime of your life in terms of your career, in terms of your experience, your knowledge, it's really hard to, to say, well, that's it, you know, just stop now. <laughs> I thought, I can't not do anything because I've got all this stuff that I know and that I feel and that I have knowledge that I have acquired that I can share. And I want to help other people. And I, as a doctor, I was always really frustrated about the NHS, how we label people and those labels stick. And it doesn't matter what the condition is, you know, we say you you have this condition. And before those people know it, they become that condition. You know, yourself, you walk down the street or walk around the supermarket. Everyone's talking about their health problems. It's all everyone ever talks about, their appointment with Dr. So-and-so and what they said and about the diabetes or about their kidneys or about their, you know, we're obsessed with our health and, and we forget that just because you have something wrong with you, that doesn't have to mean that's who you've become. The NHS spends a lot of time seeing people with long-term conditions, millions and millions, you know, there's up to one in three people of some form of disability. The only place at the moment for these people to go is to health services. My experience was that the biggest thing that helped people get better when they have a chronic condition that they're going to have for life didn't involve the NHS and drugs. It involved something that they experienced in society, in communities, somewhere that gave them a sense of purpose, that made them feel like they wanted to get out of bed in the morning because they had something to do, somewhere to go, something that made them feel good about themselves and which involved some learning and the giving. 
I wanted to to get people with disabilities to think differently about themselves. And I thought, well, why not do it through gardening? Because I love gardening. I have a big garden. I started doing some landscaping after I retired. So I built various sort of areas, beds, prairie beds, vegetable beds and so forth. And and then I uh, invited people along. I set up a charity. It's a, a CIO. It's registered with the Charity Commission. We have a board of six trustees. This is our second year now we're running the programme. And we run it over the summer months because the people who come are quite disabled. They have conditions like stroke, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, head injuries, ME, people with mental health problems as well, and also elderly people who are socially isolated. So we take a wide mix of people, male and female, from sort of the 20s into their 80s. And it almost creates a little community here. And it's my way of kind of trying to get people to look different at themselves through my own experience of seeing that we can do more than we're told we can do. Basically, I've done everything that I've been told I can't do. I'm still being told it. I still really frustrate my doctors. They still roll their eyes every time I walk in the room. You know, I'm still a really naughty patient, you know. <laughs> still to come on this episode of Stroke Stories, after so many years, Satinder reflects on how she feels towards the stroke. I don't have bitterness towards stroke itself. What I feel sad about is that because of my stroke, the decisions I took resulted in me damaging my health and my well-being. And she reveals what she's looking forward to. For the first time in my life, I'm proud of myself. So that's what I'm looking forward to, is spending the rest of my life with my head held high, looking back with a sense of pride at what I've achieved, rather than looking back with a sense of shame about who I am. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Let's hear how Satinder got involved with the young person stroke charity, Different Strokes. I started to look at the Different Strokes website and I actually was very caught by their philosophy and about their can-do attitude and they make it fun being part of what they of their organization for people but they're also very relevant in terms of the questions they answer and the topics they look at and I noticed that they were looking for more trustees so I applied at the moment it's, it's really about probity and making sure that you know as the charity grows quite quickly that we are 
pooling our limited resources in, in the right direction. I'm also attending a conference in Paris with SAFE, which is a sort of European alliance on stroke, to look at how stroke is being dealt with at a wider level, because it's one of the biggest killers and maimers of people throughout the Western world. So it's looking at kind of um, strategies, sort of more global strategies as well on stroke management, because, you know, the bottom line is that the fastest growing group of people getting stroke is now middle age. Less people getting stroke in old age, there are more people getting stroke in middle age. So there is definitely a need for a better strategy, you know, rather than just, uh, oh, well, sorry, it's happened now, there's not much we can do about it. Satinder combines a positive attitude towards life with keeping herself as busy as possible. There have been times when, you know, I sort of think, oh, you know, I wish I could run, you know, I, I miss running. I miss running a lot, but I don't think about it very much because I do other things, you know. I mean, I've just got a recumbent cycle and I did horse riding for a while and oh, and I'm a very keen sailor. We do a lot of sailing because I swim, you know, I, I, I love swimming in the sea. So we sail and, you know, and, then, and I do that. And that's been another challenge as well, you know, learning to sail. So we have a small holding, we have 12 acres. So, and I've got two grown sons and I've got a dog and I've got chickens and, sheep and oh yeah and I started lambing and you know it's like I just have so much on I've just found ways to get around things you know as I get older obviously my stroke seems to be giving me more problems in some ways and I feel you know that the tone increases a lot quicker but you know I'm, I'm just working really hard to kind of as all people do as they get older to kind of keep myself healthy and physically fit no I don't have any bitterness towards my stroke at all the main thing for me now is that for the first time in my life, I feel like it's going it's going well. I'll have to say that, you know, my life hasn't been easy after stroke because the thing that stroke did, I don't have bitterness towards stroke itself. What I feel sad about is that because of my stroke, the decisions I took resulted in me damaging my health and my well-being. So, for example, because of the attitudes people had towards me after stroke, and probably because I didn't seek help, and I should have done in retrospect, that's something I would recommend people do, and I didn't do it. I worked far too hard trying to prove something to myself and resulted in injuring myself and getting hepatitis C. And I also ended up walking into a marriage because I thought that beggars can't be choosers because... I thought that I was somebody who was unworthy because I'd had a stroke. I was a young female who who would be attracted to a young female who had a stroke. Nobody. So that was in my eyes. So I made a really bad choice there. I didn't have pride in myself to think I could deserve better. So what stroke did is it made me think lesser of myself and make wrong choices and harm myself in some ways you know what's good about my life now is that I'm in a fantastic marriage got two fantastic grown sons two fantastic stepsons live in a nice place have good friends I'm really happy about running this charity and for working for different strokes charity as well and you know I, I for the first time now I feel that I'm being kind to myself and looking after myself and and I'm for the first time in my life, I'm proud of myself. So that's what I'm looking forward to, is spending the rest of my life with my head held high, 
looking back with a sense of pride at what I've achieved rather than looking back with a sense of shame about who I am and about my disability. And that's only really happened 30 odd years after I had my stroke that I just started to feel a sense of pride about how much I've achieved despite having stroke. Whereas before this time, I've always felt that I'm lesser than other people because I've had stroke. And she believes you shouldn't focus on the negatives, but on what you've achieved. For those people who've had stroke, it's really important when you're looking at yourself to remember what you were like when you had your stroke and look at where you've come since that time. So look at how much you've achieved during that time. Don't look at the things that are wrong with you. Look at the things that you've made better. And then have a sense of pride about, you know, how many other people do you know would have come through to this stage with this level of positivity or just being here still? And to not believe what people tell you when they say you've plateaued. Don't believe that. Try everything and anything because you'll be surprised what you can actually do. There's always a way around things. Don't believe that because you've had a stroke that you have to accept second best. For relatives, for loved ones, not to treat people like they're made of glass, of cotton wool. You know, they've just had a stroke. They're fine. They're robust. They're resilient. They're not going to break. You know, let them try things. The worst thing that will happen is they'll fall over. It's far better to let somebody have a go and fall over because if you let someone to sit and look after them, then they will lose muscle, they will lose bone density and they will end up having a hip fracture, going to hospital, dying with double pneumonia or something, you know. So you're actually making people worse by, you know, looking after them too much. Also, accept that people will be more emotionally labile, but it's not you that they're getting angry at, it's themselves, you know, so not try not to take, as a, as a relative, as a loved one, try not to, to take, you know, the outburst personally. It's just that, you know, when people have had strokes, sometimes they just get really frustrated at themselves and they feel embarrassed, they wish they could do more for the people they care about. So, you know, just to bear that in mind. That's what I would say to the carers and, and loved ones. Satinder's life post-stroke is inspirational. Against all the odds, she has made a successful medical career as a GP, and among other ventures, she's now dedicating her time to keeping active and helping other adults with physical and mental health difficulties through her gardening charity, Serenity Social and Therapeutic Horticulture. If you're listening to this podcast and have had a stroke, or somebody close to you has, and you'd like to learn more, search online for the Stroke Association. For a dedicated webpage, search NHS Strokes. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,